so good. Well, we have a huge privilege. Uh, we get to have Dr. James Hawkins on this call with us and Crispin Mayfield. I hope that uh, you know who Crispin is. He's a therapist as well as he's a part of our Cascade community. Um, he actually reached out to Dr. Hawkins. Uh, he lives in Arkansas. So there's humidity we hear. Very sweaty. Moral <laughs> of that lot. story. A lot of sweat, um, which is great, you know just vulnerability hour here. Um, and so how you guys know each other is that you've been doing the training with emotionally focused therapy. So that's how you both are trained as therapists, which mm -hmm. I'm hoping is like something we all understand better by the end of this conversation of what that means. Cause you guys were throwing out acronyms at the beginning of our conversation. Yeah. And I was like, I don't even know where we are at this point. So. Yeah. Oh, guys, and dip. I don't know. Um, and so you guys <laughs> do the work on repairing relationships. Dr. Hawkins, this is specifically you. So yeah. how uh, in relationship and in marriages, the mm -hmm. example given to me was like in an affair. So how Correct. we look at the repair and relationship there and how that actually um, communicates over in conversations about repairing in communities and um, having bigger conversations. Um, so my hope is that we get to just listen to an amazing conversation of two brilliant human beings and then we can learn from you this morning. Mm -hmm. So thank you thank so much for being yeah. with us. It's just such a privilege. Thank you, Sarah. Yeah. I appreciate that. Welcome. Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for, um, I'm just really glad to have you here. Uh, actually last January, I did a couple of, uh, weeks um of speaking at our church about attachment and spirituality and what that looks like mm. so um but yeah just to kind of clarify so there's this specific kind of couples therapy called emotionally focused therapy that's based on attachment science um and so i had discovered uh dr hawkins because you have a podcast um, and I was looking for uh, some resources to keep learning and keep growing. Um, and then as I was looking, listening through episodes, I noticed that you had one on racial reconciliation in, in the church is kind of the specific context. And so I was like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, uh, listen to it. And I was like, I would love to have a conversation with you for our church about what, what this model and what we've learned about relationships and repair and connection, um, what that, how that plays out when we, um, are talking about race in the church. Um, and we're starting, this is actually the first Sunday of a series. Um, we're calling it uh, about divisiveness. Um, and so today we're talking about race, um, but you know, we're looking to November, uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, to wear a mask, to not wear a mask and finding that there are all these different conversations that are going on um, in our communities and in our families where we really get stuck um and they're such important conversations that we need to have right a lot of times we kind of default to like well let's just not talk about it but that is not very helpful um and so we we need to have these important conversations but we do end up getting stuck um and so uh james when you found or doc hawk <laughs> yeah let's do it right uh when you found like talking about race that there is this predictable pattern that emerges um in this way that we that gets in the way of understanding and moving together in in conversation and in communities mm -hmm. i wonder if you could kind of tell me what that cycle typically looks like what that dynamic looks like yeah cool yeah so the way that we i believe we're created or however you want to say we came to be as human beings is that when there is a threat we want to move towards connected. We want to move towards connection with God and with other people. Mm 
Um, and so when we feel safe enough, we can move and we can share vulnerably and we can take in the response from others. And when we feel that sense of security or safety, we can also respond to people who are in pain or threat or when there's conflict in the relationship. But when we don't feel safe <laughs> is with, or we don't feel safe or we don't have this sense of, I would say safety and security to be present with our, our own emotions or the emotions of others, is where we get into these protective type moves. And when we live in a state of protection, we cannot have connection. We just can't do it. So if I don't feel safe and I feel a threat, but my response to that threat is to move towards more of connection, I will then trigger the other person who is either reaching out to me for connection or that I'm reaching out to. So what I mean by this, particularly in race, in EFT, we always say, we want to know what the trigger is. What's the thing that cues up the dance of relationship? And anytime, if I deceive in your congregation right now, and I'm stealing this from a book called My Grandmother's Hands by Resma Menica. Great book, by the way, because he talks about race and trauma. Even just now, if I were to say, I want everyone, if you could be on this Zoom call, and we're going to go one by one, and I want each one of you to talk about race and racial reconciliation. And I want you to have to do it with somebody who is of a different race than you, and you don't know where they stand on this. What do you feel happen in your body? And kind of catch that for a moment. Do you feel your body kind of like ramp up and you want to hurry up and answer, like throw out some answers? Or do you feel your body want to kind of pull away? Like, oh, oh wait, this feels nervous. It's kind of tense. I want to kind of shut down. And what happens is that's just your protective system of your body coming online, preparing you for what you feel like is going to be a scary moment. Either it particularly, if I'm going specific to your question now, Christian, yeah. is if you're a minority in this conversation, typically what happens for many minorities is what's happened with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor. It's there's a part of us that says we want to be able to move towards our other fellow human beings that look like us and the ones that don't look like us. Because if I can move towards you and I can share this with you, I want you to see this threat with me. Because if you see this threat with me, then we can address it together and you can help create a sense of safety. And so, it, but it might come out in a very um, elevated tone or escalated because it's a threat. I'm not gonna just be like, hey, you know, let's go out and get some in and out here, you know? No, we're not gonna do that. It's gonna be like, yo, what, how did it hit you, Crispin, when you saw the eight minutes and 46 seconds? And if you kind of come back to me with, ah, well, you know, James, ah, <laughs> I don't know. You know, there's all kinds of problems in the world. There's these statistics about police officers and poor white. My body's going to say he didn't get the threat. Mm -hmm. He doesn't see it. But at the same time, so that's me on the minority side. What I tend to see with uh, uh, what I see from the majority culture or white culture, however you want to put it, particularly here in the South. Now, I don't know what it looks like uh, in Portland, Oregon. I mean, that's kind of interesting since Robin D'Angelo's research and the and inspiration for her book is in, in, your, in your context. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but I'll talk to that in a minute. So, cause I did have an experience with that. But here, particularly what you see in kind of conservative Christian circles, or even just for some people that maybe just have never done this, their body wants to move away. Because here's what usually comes up, Crispin. There's a sense of guilt and shame and I don't know. That's a big answer I hear a lot is, I don't know what to say. I'm not sure what to say. And even for white people that have good intentions is, 
I'm afraid if I say something, I'll say the wrong thing that causes more pain or that makes you see me in a bad light. So the race conversation triggers their body. And typically, this is typically what I see, is their body wants to move away. But even what I see, even a more progressive white Christian culture, they want to move towards it, but they're not, they're moving towards it usually from their own sense of experience. And they're not really identifying with the minority. So sometimes I get this where it's like, I'm the so woke, you can't tell me nothing. I got it on lock. I've read white fragility. I've read whatever. And I just got it on lock. And I'm like, look, are you talking to me? Or are you talking about your own experience? Right? But anyway, the whole point is when a signal is sent out, it needs to be responded to. If I share a part of me and there's no response back, we're going to get stuck in a cycle. Because if I share a part of me, Crispin, and you don't respond and it's a threat and I really need you, then I got to up the ante. And so if you were already triggered before and now I got to up the ante, and then you're going to really be triggered. And the more you move away, the more I kind of send out a harder signal. And the more I send up a bigger signal, the more it makes you move away until finally what usually happens in these conversations is from many times it's minorities to say, you know what, forget it. It's never going to change. It's never going to happen. You're never going to get it. Nothing's ever going to change. Or even if you respond back to me with your tears and your empathy, this is a hard one. Your tears and your empathy matter, but it doesn't change anything. If all it is is about, I feel so bad, well, you feeling so bad does not comfort me. So I'm great that you that you are hurt and that you that you can identify, but that does nothing for me. I need you to respond to my pain. Anyway, I've kind of cut that part, so I hope that answers your question. I'll tell you, I can yeah. just go on and on about this stuff. Right. No, that's great. I love that that basic framework. So basically, we see that like what's happening, our nervous system is responding to this. Right. And the the person that's in the minority position is feeling like you're not going to get this. I need to get louder and louder so that you mm -hmm. can get this. Uh, mm -hmm. But the louder that that person gets, and it goes both ways, but uh, then the person from the majority culture is going to feel guilt and shame, but then responds defensively by backing away. Mm -hmm. Or the, or just outright invalidation. So that's where the things mm -hmm. like, well, it's not that bad. Hey, this was hundreds of years ago. Mm -hmm. This isn't like the Jim Crow era. You know, they, we had a black president. Mm -hmm. I right, listened yeah. to, I got Beyonce's last album. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Sorry, these are never things I've never heard. These aren't things I've never heard before. <laughs> right. Yeah, and so then, yeah, you're seeing, you see this play out um, in all different areas. Uh, what do you think is like the most important thing to kind of understand about where this leads? Okay. Yeah, it just leads to more and more frustration. So what I do in this work and trying to help people with it, and definitely I love that book I've mentioned already, My Grandmother's Hands. I loved how he frames it. He says what America really needs to be able to heal from is what he calls, he terms, white body supremacy. And just where the context of like America is like the comfort and the preeminence of white bodies has been centralized throughout history. And and this is even where it gets beautiful for the Christian community, right? We believe that all human beings are made in the image of God and that God is the one that bestows sacred value upon every human body. And yes, we are one human race made of many ethnos and every ethnos has value because God so chose it to be. And I even liked on your church website, it does talk about in Revelation 7, 9, that before the throne of God, there will be people of every nation, tribe and tongue. That's ethnos, right? And so what happens is, is we have to restore and we have to heal the white body. 
we have to heal the, the black and brown body. We also, and in the book, he talks about healing the police body. And what he means by that, when you talk about is our nervous systems have to be rewired that we are safe with each other. And not just like rewired that we are, we need to actually make the moves to help each other feel safe with one another. Because if you look at our attachment history of America, you know, 1619, the first slaves were brought over and there was, uh, you know, slavery for 200 plus years. And then you have 89 years of reconstruction and Jim Crow and segregation. So our attachment history has always been triggered to where our bodies and it's handed down generationally. And I love in the book, it's not like the Europeans that came over, came over with no trauma in their body because they have been oppressed and mistreated as a lower socioeconomic status. So they brought that trauma over and inflicted that same trauma upon uh, the Native American body and upon the black bodies of America. Um, and so we need to be able to heal our bodies to experience. If not, this is like, this is the fear because this is what you see playing out in every discussion. Even I love that y'all are talking about divisiveness because what I say is divisiveness is, is driven by fear and fear that we cannot vulnerably allow ourselves to share or respond to with one another. And what I, what my great concern is, is we are already in a cultural civil war and will it manifest into the point where I'm so afraid of you that I've got to start doing more legislation or violent acts to snuff out the threat that is, that is opposing me. So yeah, that's how I just, I see if we let that negative cycle take over. Right. Yeah. So, uh, what do you think? So looking at you kind of diagnose the problem, uh, in EFG, a lot of times we talk about being able to talk about this cycle yeah. as a starting place. Um, I wonder in this conversation, what's kind of the next step? Yeah. So, so far, so this is where I've been at in it and there are many levels to the response to this. And so what I say is I'm a person that wants to be, I'm doing the pre-work for social change and social justice, because I know that action is needed. And I know that there's more than conversation that is needed. I 100% get that. But, but here's what I tell people. What my purpose is, is to create spaces of safety where we can then be able to share and ask questions so that way we can move towards vulnerable connection. And then the vulnerable connection allows us to actually truly know each other and to experience each other. And from that experience of us being able to walk in each other's worlds, it then leads to what we want, even when we talk about EFT, the glorified place of stage three, which is where we can now move forward in unified action because we have safety with one another and we're not getting caught up in that same negative reactive cycle where it's like all I do is attack and blame you and all you do is invalidate and avoid me. Now we can have connection. So now we can unify against that cycle and we can recognize when the cycle comes up. I can recognize like, wait a minute, you know, Crispin is not a threat to me. He's here with me. He's willing to hear me. I don't have to go after him and blame him as being like, you know, he, he represents everything that was done from that moment on. But Crispin also doesn't have to avoid and say, well, but I didn't do it, James. I wasn't there. Crispin can say, you know, hey, you know, I, I am a white male in America. And there are certain ways in which maybe I benefited, where I have benefited from the system. And, you know, ancestors and systems were set up that were based upon me. And I don't have to be ashamed of that. And I don't have to run from that. It's more of we then move into, and this is why I love with the church. That's where we say, hey, instead of it just being you're a black person, I'm a white person. Hey, we are all image bearers of God who need to be able to come together in a way that we've never historically been able to do and move forward. And this is a key part in unified action, unified action. 
And that's where it's like, now I get what it's like for me as a black male to come into this conversation. You get what it's like for you as a white male or whatever, Doesn't the gender part doesn't even really matter in this, but it's like, we understand what it means to bring our whole being that we have been given by God into this conversation. And I can speak, we can begin to speak in a place from we understand and we know each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you were talking earlier about how it's not helpful to, sometimes the response in like white uh, or like progressive circles to, to feel really bad mm-hmm. about it, right? And that ends up centering kind of on, without end up centering on my experience. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I wonder like, what does that uh, conversation look like uh, when it's in a in a healthier or more productive form? For sure. I remember one time I I came out to uh, Carlsbad, California, to do the talk and my friend out there, he said, James, this conversation is going to look different than in Arkansas. Because over here, they're going to all say that there's not one ounce of racism among them that they understand it and that they 100% get it. But I can tell you that there are so many ways in which they don't recognize that there's biases that they still have and that they still carry on and ways in which their businesses and systems still kind of perpetuate some of these same things. And so where the conversation looks a little bit different there, it's not, they're not trying to shout anyone down, but they kind of like, they're not willing to, to all, we all I think need to be able to go to a place and explore blind spots that we might have. And so there is just being able to say, do things like, hey, who are the who are the people that influence your life? You know, what are the, the programs you listen to? Who are the what are the color of the people who the books you, that you read? And do you have anywhere in your life where you have cross ethnic, uh, impactful cross ethnic relationships with people who might see the world differently than you that are having an impact on you? Because if you don't. We, then that could leave a, per, a particular blind spot there. And why not? You know, what is it that prevents that? And it might not be anything bad, but it might be, you know, it's, mm-hmm. we just need to be willing to explain. I think that's where the conversation looks a little bit different there. Mm, yeah. And then what did you see when you ask those questions? What are the things that you see triggered, the uh, emotions that you see triggered in the moves? A little bit of shock, guilt. It's like, oh my gosh, how could I not have noticed that? But then that's the hard part. And so this is me. And I know this, not every minority might make this move, but that's where it took a time for me to understand, like, what, what's the struggle for my white brothers and sisters in this conversation? What is it that keeps being a blind spot? You know, what seems so obvious to me, how do they keep not seeing it? But then if the world in the ways in which it's been set up, sets you up to live in monolithic communities, go to monolithic schools, go to monolithic churches. And then what happens is we just become creatures of habit. And then those are the people we read that we're mentored by, that we're friends with, that we do life with. And so therefore you even get trapped in a system uh, that you had no responsibility in shaping, but that still shapes who you are in the current moment. And then now you have to do some work on what does it mean for me to learn within this system? And then as I learned, this is what I thought with some of my white friends, as they learn in this system and they begin to speak out and share things, they are shunned and rejected amongst church members, family members, because it's like, hey, you're one of us. What are you doing? It's almost like you're in counselor terms, you're breaking homeostasis, like, hey, don't mess with a good thing. And I was talking to one of my um, uh, my black sisters yesterday. and she, she said it very well. She says, I, I thought about this for white people, James. And I was like, what is this you've been thinking about? She's like, if the system has always been based on me and it's very comfortable for me, 
why would I ever do anything to make myself uncomfortable? Why would I ever allow anything in that possibly makes me uncomfortable when there is no reason that I in any way have to? That's where this conversation, even though I use the analogy of marriage a lot and the comparison of marriage, and marriage is a little bit different or, or, or family that you have by blood because you've made some kind of covenant and commitment. But this is why I think the church needs to take a preeminent role on this. Because while I could kind of discount the person just in society in general, if we believe in the same God, I do not have the license to disregard you because I'm going to be accountable to you. Because Jesus makes it very clear. What are the two greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. But the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. We're accountable to that. I cannot discount who you are. And even when the, the parable of the Good Samaritan, and they're like, who is my neighbor? And he tells them the parable of the Good Samaritan. And Jesus is so intentional. He mentions someone from a despised ethnic group that the Jews, we knew that he knew the Jews would not like. And he tells them this message to arouse their and to show them their own biases and struggles. And like, look, your neighbor is whomever you encounter, regardless of ethnic identification. Mm -hmm. And we don't even know if the guy did anything to deserve to be robbed. So we're not doing the whole thing where people are like, well, we'll see when the facts come out or he was a bad person. It's like, no, he's like, it doesn't matter why he ended up on the side of the road and got, he got robbed and you're supposed to take care of him. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow, this is just such great stuff, such a great framing. And I think just something that is, yeah, I, I think living in Portland, right? We, we've we read all the books, so we get it is what we think. Um, so I wonder like, what is, what is in your experience, what is something, um, and I'm thinking about like, um, EFT, the forgiveness conversations, right? Yeah, there, we've yeah. kind of identified that for okay. when there's been harm done, we kind of know what what a good apology looks like. And the apology is, isn't just that I feel bad, but it's like, I understand your pain. Um, I wonder like, in what ways have you experienced that or seen that in like a concrete, tangible way? Not, not for a script, but just to kind of right. like give a picture. No, that's okay. I think what you're talking about is beautiful. Like when me and my uh, colleague, Ryan Rayner, really began researching this, this was a huge part for us where we took the attachment injury repair model in EFT and we kind of began to revamp it and use it in the racial reconciliation conversation. So this is a little bit of what that looks like. And in EFT, we call it the six step forgiveness model. And so the first step in this model and what and you were talking, we were talking a little bit about this before. So kind of the frame of attachment injury repair is kind of like thinking of a marriage where there's been an affair, right? We we're talking about this off offset. Right. And so it's like the person who's been betrayed and this one will go with the wife has been betrayed by the husband, the husband had an affair. Well, the husband's going to have a whole lot of guilt and a whole lot of shame. There's going to be so much about him that makes this conversation uncomfortable. But in this particular part, both of these people matter and both the things that they that they feel matter. However, to restore the relationship back and rebuild the trust, the wife's pain takes preeminence because she's been betrayed. And so her pain gets front and center. And I can tell the husband, like, I can see this is so hard for you. So I, this is a script I usually use. Hey, I get that this is so hard for you, man. I can feel that this brings up a lot. You, you, you love this woman and you hurt her and to see her pain makes you com completely uncomfortable. But I need to tell you that if we avoid this pain, it's only going to make things worse for you in the future. And actually, your healing is tied up in her tears. Mm. 
that you know that the pain is there. And if she hides this from you, it's going to leave a part of you always guessing, are we okay? I'd rather go ahead and go into the pain and allow you to see her pain and to watch her pain progress as you two restore trust here. So that way she can know that you're really with her. And that way you get to see her healing process and know that you were a part of it. That's how we restore things and move forward. But right now I got to move back over here to her because the first step I'm going to get to now, I've kind of like in a sense, bubble wrapped him. You're great. Hold on. But because the first step in forgiveness is particularly in the race conversation is the minority needs to be able to capture the essence of their pain and feel willing to share it openly. That's different because in context, minorities typically have been taught. I can't talk about this part of me outside of these circles with anybody else. And what a lot of times is I just got to suck it up. I've got to push it. I got to push it down. I got to move on. And why let myself be weak and vulnerable anyway? I would just be taken advantage of even more, but I know I need to heal from this. So it's a very healing thing to even turn to minorities and say, I want to understand. I want to see this pain. And I know this pain is there and to like give them that space. And what happens is when that move starts happening, people from majority culture or white culture, typically what happens is this is the part that, that has, I don't see happen typically. They have to be able to stay emotionally present as that pain comes out. And they need to stay there to something which you were just saying a good moment again, uh, Crispin, is they need to be able to stay there until the minority can see that their pain in the minority's body is not only in their body, but the person on the listening end also feels it happening in their body. That's an amazing way in how God wired us. We have these mirror neurons that in order, in order for me, like we were joking with Sarah online and she did something, she talked about the redness that came up. Well, I felt the heat in my body come up too because I know what it feels like to be in an awkward moment. And so I felt that heat resonate through my body. And that's me in identifying with what Sarah felt. And even now, like Sarah could probably smile. She's like, whoa, wait, he felt what I felt. He kind of entered his body. And that feels like a bond and a closeness. And when a minority can see that happen in the forgiveness model, then it goes to what we were saying earlier. There's been this threat. I want to turn to you and share it, but I need to know you really got it. So just a quick apology, it blocks the process. Or just trying to move like, hey, what can I do? How do I fix this? How do I make it right? I don't know if I can trust it because I don't know if you really get it. I don't know if you really feel it. Not that you'll ever know exactly what it's like to be a black male, but have you said, I allowed myself to kind of like try my best and try that on. And then this is the, as I watch you do it, James, what I even feel come up in me is you're right. It's a deep sense of betrayal and anger and hurt. And how could you not feel that anger, betrayal, hurt when you think about what your ancestors went through, when you think about ways in which maybe life is even harder for you now than it maybe is for me as a white male. And that just isn't fair and it sucks. And I see it. Then my body can say, Crispin's got it. That's when I get to say, you're an ally. Because mm. you're not just an ally intellectually. Mm-hmm. You're an ally because you get it intellectually, but you're also with me emotionally. And then what happens is, into the like that was step number two, staying with it. And then step number three is this sense of, the minority, when they feel that, they will drop a little bit deeper into the emotion of sharing even more. I remember being in a group one time of a mixed group of black and white, and I watched the minorities in that safety. They begin to tell stories of trauma and of pain, and then they moved into a time of prayer and connection together. Because it's like, I can drop this defensive stance and let you in because I see you get it and you really want to see it. And then what happens is in step number four, because the minority sees the pain, now they're not just taking like 
like, oh, so you're saying I got to take the blame for all the years of slavery and every Jim Crow act that was done. No, what they begin to do is say, you know what? We as Americans or we as the church, we were, because um, that's where we become the collective body of Christ. You know, that we are a part of a, a great cloud of witnesses that we accept our, that even the people who went before us are a part of our family. And we can say, you know what? A part of our family didn't get this right. And we wronged you and we hurt you. And even though I, was, I wasn't there, I'm here right now. And I'm going to join with you in right now to help make this right for us going forward. And then what happens is, is then after that, then we can move into a new conversation where now we're doing the mutual healing. We're only with that step five. <laughs> That's step five. Many times what I see from any white people is they want to do step five at step one. Mm-hmm. And let's work on this mutual healing. No, we haven't uncovered the pain. I don't know if you really feel it. I don't know if you're really committed towards recognizing that we all have a part to play in making this better. But then the, the part everybody wants is step six. And both sides can now create a new story that recaptures that recaptures the injury, how it happened, how it affected trust and connection, and now we can build a more beautiful story moving forward. But that's all the way until step six. That's the final step. And many times people want that one first, but there's not been this place of the pain has been addressed. We can mutually fit, feel it. We can share it because we get caught in the negative cycle of when my anger comes up and then it brings up your guilt and your shame and then you go away which makes me more angry and then the more angry i get then you feel attacked and you can move more guilt and shame so the pain is never seen because one i'm not going to show you my pain because pain is so vulnerable because if i show you my hurt then you have the opportunity to either reject it and validate and add on more hurt because rejection and pain register the same way in the brain physical pain and rejection your brain doesn't see it registers the same part of the brain And so I don't want to show you my pain if you're just going to walk away and leave me. So I'd feel better off showing you my anger because my anger is my hope that I might be able to get your attention. It's the juice that keeps me fighting for something even when it feels hopeless, right? And then for the white person, sometimes even for many good ones, they feel like they're kind of like um, sometimes superficial or even sometimes avoidance is, well, I'm scared of making things worse. But even in your fear of making things worse, though, it still sends a message. But then you feel stuck because then it's like, I know that me my fear in going away sends a message. But then if I turn and I feel like I'm doing something wrong or I'm told to shut up and be quiet, then it's like I'm not doing good enough. So I'm stuck and I feel like I have no good moves here, right? Yeah, thank you so much for just walking us through that model because I think it brings so much clarity to to what happens in these conversations and you you said something about like you know making that quick apology to get away from the pain and i'll just say that i recognize that in myself that's kind of like i'll read all the books i'll do all the training i'll do all the education but in order to kind of make it better without having to sit with the pain Mm. and uh so i just just want to share a little bit and really appreciate it like just yeah like outlining that and talking about what does this conversation look like because i don't think that we get to see it very often nope nope and that's why i believe many attempts at trying to solve these things break down because just for me i want there are i believe there are places for legislative change and some things but if all you do is change legislation but the hearts of the people are not changed then the same relationship that caused a problem before will happen again 
Yeah, well, thank you so much. I don't know if there's any, we have just a couple of minutes left. I don't know if there's anything else you want to add before we end today. I think we're all just going to be like sitting with this. Like, you know, a lot of times we can go back and rewatch it on Facebook. I know I'm going to be yeah. doing that later this week. Well, let me give it to you because one of the questions you had kind of proposed as a possible one was, so what does this look for us to talk about this as a community? And I kind of stole this one from my friend George Fowler, who's an EFT trainer and his co-author Heather P. Wright. They wrote a book called True Connection, uh, using the name it model to heal relationships. And there's a, a specific chapter where he's kind of using an EFT and attachment theory to talk about communities. And the name it model is an acronym for First, you have to be able to notice that there's a disconnection between us. I don't even think in sometimes until moments like what's happened recently in, in the moment, we don't even recognize that there uh, of how significant, how deep the disconnection is. So we even have to recognize how deep this connection is. Then we need to be able to acknowledge that we, we be able to have to acknowledge each other's experiences in this disconnection that just because we're all Americans or we could all be Christians or whatever, it doesn't mean we've had the same experience because ethnically of the historical elements that have been put in place, we have different experiences as people. And then we need to be able to merge those experiences together because what you see happening out in society right now is everybody's trying to fight for this is my experience and how I see the world and it is the preeminent and predominant. And this is why we can't do unity work because America, one of the beauties of it is we are all people of just different ethnicities and whatever ways of, of seeing of who we are. And we all have different experiences and that's okay. We all have the right to exist here and we all have the right to live our lives with life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. But we do have different experiences, but there are parts where we can merge it together. You believing what you believe or seeing the world you see it does not have to mean that it's a complete threat to who I am. And you have every right to exist and believe what you believe and to be here just as much as I have the right to exist and to be here. And can we all uh, be able to exist in this space together as long as we're not threatening uh, the other person? So we've got to be able to merge our different experiences. And then once we can merge that, we can then begin to be able to embrace and respond empathically to each other and to our needs. And the idea is once again, we want to be able to integrate this and this is like all just i'm going through it so quick but this is a big beautiful idea of community and so how do we begin to integrate those and i think that's what you're going for here at cascade as well even just looking like you know there are some there are some things out there they're hanging out there but in all things what it matters is loving is loving one another that's the thing that should be the central element of who we are as believers no matter what right and then we could begin to celebrate and be this sense of shared appreciation and value. I don't know if we've ever had that time in America where we've ever been able to share appreciation and value for one another and what we all bring to this table. And that was needs to change, even in the way we teach history. You know, in the night that Paul Revere wrote out with the message, the British are coming, the British are coming, a black man wrote out in the same opposite direction with the same message, but he's not mentioned in our history books. We don't talk about the black spies that went under the free black men who went undercover for George Washington to get information to help uh, win America's independence. We don't teach that predominantly in history lessons. And so we need to be able to talk about the story in which all of us as Americans came together to build uh, what this nation is. And, in the, and even while we talk about the beautiful part, we have to say there are times when we as America, we acted as hypocrites to the things that we said we believe and we didn't honor that and we are sorry for that. And we are committed to working towards making that, right, that wrong right and to making sure that something like that never ever happens again, that it's never a part of our DNA again. Yeah, thank you so much for walking through that and, and giving a vision of what that would look like as a community and as a church. 
Yeah, there's just so much great stuff here. I love Sarah. You're just like writing everything down. I know, I'm right? writing notes. I this is how I learn. Yeah. So I'm like, so sorry. I'm just gonna take right. a few notes while we're talking. Uh-huh. Right. That's yeah. fine. Yeah. Um, you know what stuck with me is the intellectually and emotional connection, like both yeah. sides of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And I I really believe a piece of white privilege is to do one and not the other. And so how could we continue to merge? I just I feel just really convicted by that. So hey, can you. I jump in with that real quick? Because my yeah. friend George says, uh, he calls it, we've got to be able to co-co together. <laughs> what you'll see in good connected relationships is they can co-co, meaning we co-create meaning. We need to, this is Brene Brown, we need to be able to build story together. We need to make sense of things together. And that's why even in this race conversation, is how do people who are safe get together and talk? And that's why even with everything you're hearing me share, George is an Irish New Yorker from that was a police officer. Ryan Reina is a country boy from Arkansas who was a, a football, baseball jock. Here I am, a black guy from the military. And even Sue Johnson, I've consulted with her, a Canadian. But we're all sitting here talking across different lines of like, how do we come together and make sense of what's happening? So we're co-creating meaning. But then the other part is we as human beings need to co-regulate affect. Meaning what happens is when I don't feel safe, then I've, if I don't feel safe with other human beings, then I've got to comfort myself. But we weren't built by God to just only comfort ourselves. We need a little bit of that. But what we need is co-regulation, meaning I allow myself to be open and other people to respond to me. Even in the race conversation, though, is it's a sad day if black people can only can only rely on black people for co-regulation or white people can only feel safe with white people or, or you know, um, Latinx community only feels like they can be safe with the Latinx community, right? But when we can co-regulate with each other, I think that's the missing healing element. Is like, I know my world transformed when I recognize that around the race conversation, I have a community of safe white people and a safe community of black, of different, that understand it and that they get it and that we can talk about it together. That was healing for my body to say, I'm building a story cross-ethnically and I feel safe in it anyway. Oh, thank you. Is there, um, just as follow or as people are watching you, is there like a great place to follow your work or like, where would we direct people if they want to listen to your podcast or learn more about you? So y'all are catching me on the, like, so this has just hit me like a whirlwind. Like I didn't recognize how much this attachment language was necessary and it's been a whirlwind. So for right now, I've just been posting a lot of stuff on a site called on Facebook page called Healing Conversations NWA, which is Northwest Arkansas. But that's where you'll see a lot of this stuff that I post. I'm in the process of building a website out for this where you'll go on the website and you'll be able to see different videos I've done on these same conversations. But yes, we are in the process of forming a Healing Conversations podcast that will be coming out after a while where I just interview different guests and we just show public because what society doesn't hear. And this is where I blame the media. The media is, they are in a process, they sell contempt. So what they do is they want to sell the most shocking, centralizing story. But conversations like we're talking here, they usually don't get mass media play because they don't get a lot of clicks and likes and those kinds of things. So what I see society is starving for is being able to see people have authentic conversations. Even I talk to a lot of people who don't agree with me and we, we, we talk it out and we work it out. And then usually at the end, and I'm not saying every time, but many times I love it when they're like, James, thank you. I didn't ever see it that way before. All I ever saw it was is the only way I could enter this conversation is to say I'm a horrible white person and everything I've ever believed is horrible and everyone I've ever loved is horrible. And I just don't know how to join with that because that's not true. 
that's not true right so anyway yeah mm. great yeah uh, thank you okay well we'll make sure to put that on cascade we'll put it on our facebook and we'll try to direct you as well as i see that we'll make sure we put this on the podcast and get the audio up on for cascades podcast as well and awesome. nicola i'm thinking nicola is that's my wife you. i was gonna say is that your wife because she yeah, is my wife nicola yeah. it. nicola so sorry um, oh, you're good. she's just like nailing it right now on our facebook like boom boom like if you missed good highlights just look at what she's saying so got like a little <laughs> echo going so i love it so awesome. good thank, thank you all right yeah